0: Welcome to That Means Nothing to Me. We have an unbelievable episode today. You'll get that joke in a a minute. to hear was an incredible experience for me i grew up being a fan of ripley's believe it or not i had all the books i bought them at the scholastic book fair at school uh and my dog is named ripley so this was huge this was a huge deal for me um i had an absolute blast recording it it's my favorite episode i've made so far i know i said a lot without further ado i hope you enjoy
1: Edward Meyer. I worked for 40 years with Ripley's, believe it or not, as the vice president of exhibits and archives. I'm very, very proud of my career with Ripley's, but I'm even more proud of my dealings with people, both privately and publicly. People are the most important thing in my life. So I'm very proud of my 40 years with Ripley's. Uh, I've been places that most people haven't. I've done some pretty strange things that don't think anybody else has done. And you know, along the way, I've met some very, very interesting people. Uh, for sure, the best part of the job was the people. Every, everything from astronauts and professional sports to people in a little back room of a house making stuff out of lint or toothpicks. You know lady uh, named Slater Barron in Newport uh, California when i first met her she did portraits of english kings and queens out of lint i bought a few of those and she had a career longer than mine but uh, over over time she ended up making anything you wanted basically out of lint and for ripley specifically you know we would build a museum in a place like hong kong or uh, thailand and we would want something that was you know historically significant to that area we would commission her uh, to make pieces you know wow. maybe one of the most famous was uh, a life-size portrait of john wayne for a museum in hollywood uh, but my favorite was Shi uh, hongti the man who uh, china is named after But most importantly, he's the guy that unified the country and started building the Great Wall of China. So, you know, a a really major significant player in the grand scheme of things. And she did a a fabulous piece that uh, for the 10 years we were in Hong Kong, it was uh, there. And uh, I believe it is now in New York City, but you know, there's nothing like it in the entire world. I mean, it, it is a truly, truly unique and unbelievable piece. Toothpicks, guy up in New York, his name escapes me at this moment, but he, he built what he called Toothpick City. He made over 300 of the world's most famous buildings all out of toothpicks. The sheer magnitude, the scope was unbelievable. 300 plus buildings. So th- those are a couple samples. Um, I have written two books since I've retired. Uh, the first one is called Buying the Bazaar, uh the confessions and adventures of a compulsive collector and it tells my 40 years with ripley's believe it or not Uh, my second book is called a man in the blues a love story and it's actually 50 years of my life so even a bit longer (laughs) but all the time i was working with ripley's my personal hobby has always been american blues music Now, people that know me well, knew it, but you know, it never came out in interviews or anything. It wasn't what people were interested in Edward right, about right. Uh, So I see the two books together. Uh, they're both memoirs of a type, but together they tell the whole story of Edward Meyer, the, the public side with Ripley's the private side with the blues. And you know, if anything, I am probably most proud of that in two years i've written two books and they're both big books we're not we're not talking 50 (laughs) pages here they are both close to 600 pages and uh, you know i i've if if no one reads them if no one reads them i feel a great sense of accomplishment having written them and i've at least left a legacy to my family
0: How did you first find the blues? How did how did this part of your story start? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it
1: grabbed me immediately. But uh, yes, the origin story is pretty funny, uh, or, or at least pretty significant. Um, like any other child of the 1960s, uh, for those listening, I'm 64 years old at this point. Uh, so I I was very young when the Beatles hit but for the first two or three years of my musical life, the Beatles were everything. My last year in grade school, and all of my close friends were always a couple years older than I am, so I was the youngest of the gang as such. But uh, in my last year at age 13, my buddy and I went to a dance in the next school over, and we saw a bad garage band, Called Electric Mud. And uh, Electric Mud, you know, whether it's a good name or a bad name, and to be honest, I can't even remember what kind of music they played, but it was bad. It was not good. And a couple days later, we were at our friend Michael Keel's house, and Michael had an older brother named Don. Uh, and I mentioned to Michael that he made the right decision not going to the dance. The band Electric Mud was terrible. You know, the $1 or whatever to get in, it wasn't worth it. The band was horrible. And off to the side, uh, his older brother Don heard me say Electric Mud and went on a tirade. He basically said that Electric Mud was a bad album It was Muddy Waters' worst album, but it was better than a whole lot of other stuff that was out there. How dare you say this about Electric Mud? I said, wait a minute, Don. We're talking about two different things. I'm not talking about an album called Electric Mud. I'm talking about a band called Electric Mud. And, you know, so he, he didn't beat me up, but he left it in my brain that I didn't know what I was talking about and that I should check out this guy named Muddy Waters. And so the first opportunity I did, and I still have that record. It's still one of my favorite records, Muddy Waters, more real folk blues. Uh, The songs on it are from like 1949, 50, 51, 52, but as an album, it came out in 67. So in 68, it was still a, you know, relatively new album. Muddy Waters is very important to my life and obviously to the book as well. So from that one weird little episode with Muddy Waters, uh, my record collection grew from Beatles to a few odds and ends. Not a lot because, you know, I didn't have a bunch of money and I'm still only 13 years old. So, you know, I'm not spending every cent on records yet. (laughs) Yet being important there. And then uh, kind of a, a second epiphany, an older sister of mine, uh, a friend of hers named Malcolm O'Brien came into our house and literally tore Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band off of the turntable and said, you know, you should be listening to this. And he put on the first Robert Johnson album. And so those two moments, uh, literally epiphanies, you know, Muddy Waters uh, got me into the blues and then Robert Johnson sort of, you know, was like the pinch hitter uh sealed the situation and muddy waters uh i liked instantly robert johnson uh needed to grow on me a little bit but pretty pretty soon i was you know tracing the roots of those two uh and that led to everything i mean today i have uh roughly 5000 blues records wow. uh, uh probably 200 blues books hundreds of blues magazines, uh, guitar, a B.B. King pocket watch, uh, movie posters, you know, my collection today isn't just the physical music, it's everything related to it. And you know, my life at Ripley's as an archivist has taught me to collect things, and you know, that's the title of my first book. Uh, I was always collecting for Ripley's, but on the side I was always collecting for Edward.
0: Ever run into anything where you saw it and you thought this would be great in a Ripley's museum, but also at the same time you were thinking this would be great for Edward's museum. Well yeah there there's several of those um, <laughs> and
1: we clear, clearly my uh, leanings and what I bought Ripley's have a lot to do with you know my personal decisions you know as the guy that was in charge uh, you know I I The whole 40 years I was with Ripley's, I was never allowed to sign a check. So there's always checks and balances that what the hell is he out there spending money? You know, what is it he wants this time and somebody else has to approve to write the check. But I never had anybody saying, no, you can't do that. You know, they may say, can you get it cheaper? But if Edward thought that this was right for Ripley's, you know, Edward went out and bought it. Not exactly answering the question you asked, but a funny one is, uh, you know, uh, and I, again, the name slips my mind, but in the 1940s, there is uh, the equivalent of what I would call MTV videos in black music history, little short one song soundies that were made for this thing that looks like a jukebox, but it plays visuals as well as the sound. And I had the opportunity to buy one of those for Ripley's, and I just like I could not justify it because I really wanted it. <laughs> you know, it, like the company's looking at me going, "What is it? Why do we want this?" And well, trust me, trust me, but no, it, it, it literally made no sense at any price for Ripley's. It was something that I really wanted in my own home, and then of course I've I, I ended up buying at least two jukeboxes in my career, but, you know, jukebox was always something I wanted in my house, too, so, you know, well, trust me, trust me, this is the best jukebox we could have, Uh, and the first one was a local one, which is kind of an interesting Ripley story, a a guy uh, out by Claremont, Florida, his entire life, I, I can't imagine the poor bugger, his wife collected everything and anything with Betty Boop on it their windows, their dishes, their carpet, their front door, and their jukebox. When she died, probably the next day, I mean, he must have wanted to get rid of this stuff. And the house was pink and red, okay? Pink and red house. So he was trying to sell the entire Betty Boop collection, and no one in their right mind is going to buy, I think he had 3,700 pieces with Betty Boop on it. Oh my. But I, I ended up buying 20 or 30 of what I thought were the best, including a jukebox
0: shaped like Betty Boop. It was pretty cool. So it, it wasn't like a jukebox that was decorated like Betty Boop, it was literally shaped like Betty Boop.
1: combination of both. <laughs> the, the front end is Betty Boop. The sides, the lighting, all decorated, but you know, the back end is still a, a square basic jukebox. But it was, you know, from 1945 or something. It was super vintage, gorgeous jukebox with all the, the bubble effect and all the stuff that you look for in a good jukebox. So those are, you know, samples that I hope sort of answer your question. I mean, uh, the, they come to mind instantly, but I'm sure there was others too. I mean, if, if we go beyond uh, the, the music side of things, you know, from an early age, I was interested in Egyptian mummies and dinosaurs. So, you know, a dream come true when I get a chance to actually buy a dinosaur skeleton or an Egyptian mummy. But, you know, it was part of my soul that said, hey, you know, we really should buy this. This is the coolest thing that we're ever going to get a chance to put in a Ripley's museum. And somebody else that didn't like dinosaurs wouldn't have thought that way. But, uh, you know, the guy that had the check that was buying the stuff wanted dinosaurs in Ripley's. And that was a, you know, that was a major deal. 1993, Jurassic Park, the first movie came out, dinosaurs were everywhere. And, you know, i would loved dinosaurs since I was like five years old. But, you know, I could walk into the president of Ripley's and say, you know, dinosaurs are a big draw right now. We should have dinosaurs in our Ripley Museum. And uh, the first time I went to China, I bought... uh, Well, probably close to a million dollars worth of dinosaur fossils, and specifically dinosaur eggs. Ripley's has probably the biggest collection of dinosaur eggs in the world.
0: Speaking of the actual process of going overseas, spending an inordinate amount of money on something, and then getting it back to the U.S., how does that whole process work?
1: Well, China was a tough one, and I, I would hazard to say China's still a tough one, but 1993, uh my getting to china was even difficult that that for me was a an a you know a first big step uh, changing the way i did business and you know also changing the company to become much more an international company than just an american company so in 19 i guess um, let, let's call it a 1991 I presented at at a board meeting a desire to buy large Chinese sculptures made out of jade. Uh, And the largest one I had seen at that point was in Chicago. And he listened to me and said, well, you know, are you really interested in this? And, And, you know, why? And basically, my defense at the time was that Robert Ripley's favorite country was China. And... You know, his personal collection, the things he put in his house tended to be Chinese art. And I thought that we could bring back Robert Ripley as a character like Disney does with Disney. If we had some Chinese artifacts, that's how we could present Ripley the man as an introduction to Ripley the collection. And so we went to what was called the Guangzhou Arts Trade Festival Festival conference, whatever. It's like a 10 day thing that still happens every year. But when I went in 1993 and I spent roughly $2 million in like one week. And I told you earlier, I couldn't write a check. So that's pretty tough to do right from the start. Every morning I was there, I spent the first half hour of my day in line at the American Express office, getting more money, physical cash. Uh, and they'd only let you take so much, so I had to keep doing this every day, and they're probably going, what the hell is this guy spending so much money for every day, he's back there in his line, so I would put down a cash deposit on whatever I was interested in, sign a contract, agreed to spend x number of dollars for x number of objects, and I went away from China, having spent, you know, physically quite a lot of money in cash, but, you know, assigned to spend over a million dollars, and I took nothing with me. I came home with an empty suitcase. So, a lot of faith. And that, stuff, that first load from China took over six months before we saw it. And when it arrived, it came perfect. I mean, nothing broken. Everything that I had agreed to buy was there. Uh, that we were pretty darn impressed with China. The people we were dealt with, they delivered the goods, and the stuff was very successful for Ripley. So we ended up going back a couple times. We went outside the trade show uh, to a factory where they were actually producing the sculptures. No idea where we're going, no communication for like an hour and a half car ride, and we're out in the middle of nowhere. To, to this day, I couldn't tell you where we were in relationship to the city of Guangzhou other than we were about 90 minutes somewhere. And we walked into a building that had nothing but big, giant jade sculptures in it. Big, wow. huge, empty, rectangular building, no fancy air conditioning, no, no furniture, just a big warehouse with people at desks. And there would be one primary artist who designed the piece, but there could be an even more so with the camel bone, as I said, but, you know, maybe a dozen people working on it. One person does the dragons. One person does feathers. One person does the, uh, the sails of the sailboats, you know, like everybody's got a little job and only one person you know, designs that really knows what the whole thing is going to look like when they put it together. All hand labor. Hundreds of employees carving jade in this building and um, I've never seen anything like it. On the humorous side, as I said, you know, I, I tend to get into trouble every now and then. I broke a piece when we were only like, like two minutes into the building Oh no! And, and like the only other person that speaks English with me is going, uh-oh, we're in trouble now. Like, I guess we have to buy something and blah, 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 You know, like they're yattering in Chinese and we're going, uh-oh, are they saying they're gonna kill us? And you know, there, there was an element of, it, it seemed like something out of a, a James Bond movie. But we ended up spending, I think we bought uh, 15 large pieces that day. It was an amazing
0: experience. Coming up, two very different kinds of dresses.
1: four years I judged a toilet paper wedding dress contest and that was a heck of a lot of fun. I, I actually just about a week ago was talking to one of the two sisters that started the, the, the contest in the company and informed her that anytime they ever need a judge again even if I'm retired I do that job again. The first time the company is called Cheap Chic Weddings and my wife saw them on the Martha Stewart television show the, they you know year number 1 i think they're in like year number 15 or so it now but she saw this and she called me at work and said you got to turn on Martha Stewart right now she's got these people making wedding dresses out of toilet paper it's amazing you know and as the Ripley guy, yeah, that sounds amazing. You don't have to hard sell me sure. toilet paper wedding dresses. How cool is this? So I called them and from year two up until about year 10, Ripley's was very involved. We held a couple of them in our Ripley museums, uh, specifically in New York. And what they would do is uh, it's about a three month gig that anybody can enter but the dress they make has to be made totally out of toilet paper. No particular kind, no limit to how much toilet paper. Uh, you can make it as thick as you want so that it holds together, but they have to be able to wear it at least once. It has to be a wearable outfit that they can do a fashion show with. So for four years, I was the head judge of the toilet paper fashion show, and that's uh, there, there's a chapter about that in my book, Buying the Bazaar, because it was a very unique job <laughs> as such. Uh, but based on those success of the toilet paper wedding dresses, we started buying clothing uh, made from other things, such as pop tins, bubble gum wrappers, whatever. And, you know, none of them are as good as the toilet paper. That, that's baffling. But, you know, there are artists and design people out there that are, are very creative, making clothing out of things that you wouldn't normally think. So we saw this as a trend. And so we started buying stuff, you know, for a couple of years. That was, Ed, Edward was on the lookout for clothing made from odd things. So we got enough of it that uh, during Fashion Week, uh, we held our own fashion show. And I got to be uh, a bit of the MC, but as the male escort to all the ladies. So I wore a tuxedo that was from the television show Dallas, worn by uh, whatever his name is, the star. So so I, I looked good in a special tuxedo, and I would walk down the runway with a lady wearing a dress made out of gum wrappers or toilet paper or whatever. So that, that that's
0: my career as a beauty contest. That's so cool that your wife just so happened to be watching Martha Stewart at the time that those dresses were there. And it led to the entire era of Ripley purchasing clothing.
1: Oh yeah, and you know, as I said, I, I was involved with the wedding dress ladies for, you know, probably seven or eight years. That we got to what happened, we would give money to, for them to hold the contest, and we would get the prize-winning dresses. You know that was the deal. So every year I was getting three or four new dresses. That was my job—is to get things to display. Here was a way that I was guaranteed several new dresses every year, just by making a you know a couple-hour appearance, uh, which I kind of like to do anyway. And in this case, you know, fun places like New York and pretty girls. Florida stories. You you want Florida stories? Is that? Of course, sure, sure, absolutely. All right. So, and these these are in the book. But meeting Bo Diddley. Do you know who Bo Diddley is? I do not. Okay, 1950s seminal rock and roll guy, basically is is borderline blues. He started blues and never left it, but he made his name as a rock and roll pioneer. And Bo, Bo Diddley to me is one of those absolute pivotal people, you know, all kinds of different music came out of what he called the jungle Bo Diddley beat. of the sound that, you know, nobody else was doing at the time and imitated by hundreds others after.
0: Watch the technique of Bo Diddley!
1: Well, for the last several years of his life, Bo Diddley lived in Gainesville, Florida actually a little farm just outside of Gainesville. The Ripley warehouse and the oldest Ripley museum is in St. Augustine, Florida. And so I used to spend a lot of time in St. Augustine and about half a mile, mile north of the museum in St. Augustine, a really cool little secondhand record store. Every time I went to St. Augustine, I'd spend an hour in the record store and spend some money. And I'm sitting there looking at the few blues records that are in the record store. It's not a specialty shop. It's just a used record store. And so, you know, there's only a few blues records and I'm looking through and I I sense somebody behind me, you know, the improper spacing, you know, not giving me my space. And, you know, you know, this guy's obviously got to be a big guy. He's breathing down my neck, you know, yeah, I'm going as fast as I can, whatever. And eventually I just like, okay, just let him have his, have the section and I'll come back to it when he's finished. And I turn around and, oh my God, it's Bo Diddley. And like, I'm, I, I literally screamed it. And, you know, everybody in the record store, you know, not too many people, a little, you know, like what the heck's going on over there in the corner? And I'm stuck, <laughs> Bo-, 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 Bo Diddley, you know? I, you know, I didn't know how to address him. I knew his real name was uh, Eliza McDaniels. And I said, uh, Mr. McDaniels, I'm a big fan. And he says, you know, you got to call me Mr. You can't call me Bo. I don't want everybody in St. Augustine knowing that Bo Diddley shops in a secondhand record store. So I never did actually see what he bought, but I still have the receipt from what I bought, which I have a picture of in the book saying, you know, the day I met Bo Diddley, second-hand record store shopping in St. Augustine, Florida. Fast forward a bunch of years, and the Historical Society here in Orlando uh, had a display of Florida rock and roll musicians, and they advertised that they were going to have Wayne Cochran and Bo Diddley. I guess it's fortunate and unfortunate, Wayne Cochran didn't play. Wayne Cochran was just there, but we got to meet him. And because he wasn't playing, we got to spend quality time with him, got to talk to him. I got an autograph photo with him and that sort of thing. And then Bo Diddley played, and that was the last time I saw Bo Diddley and the only time I saw Wayne Cochran. But, uh, you know, in my mind, Wayne Cochran is probably the most important Florida artist of all time, uh, another pioneer of rock and roll. And, you know, Bo Diddley wasn't from here, but he spent a lot of time in Florida. So put those two guys together, and it was a great day for Florida music. Both those guys I would call rhythm and blues as opposed to straight blues. You know, very different than the Muddy Waters or the Robert Johnson we talked about earlier. But, you know, I like all kinds of blues. I, I like classic vaudeville singers like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey. My favorites are Chicago blues guys like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. But, you know, I, I like just about anybody you could name is probably I got a record or two of. And, you know, uh, Wayne, Wayne Cochran, he was most famous for being the, the front band before Elvis. He had a long career being Elvis's opening act. I mean, how wow. much better in rock and roll history can you get than that? And And if any of your listeners, you know, aren't aware of, either of those artists. Bo Diddley was probably the first rock and roll star on Ed Sullivan. There's a 1955 clip of Bo on Ed Sullivan. And Wayne Cochran on the David Letterman show from about, I don't know, maybe 1980 or so.
0: Welcome back to the show. We have uh, quite a show for you tonight.
1: Is uh, five role. minutes of the greatest rock and roll ever put down on film. Literally tears up the the studio. Please welcome,
0: ladies and gentlemen, Wayne Cochran. Your book is called A Man in the Blues, A Love Story. Who is it mostly written for? Uh, I think anybody that
1: likes blues will like the book. Uh, It is written for people that know something already, but general enough with a very big glossary. Uh, There's like 60-page glossary of explaining what things are if you don't know them. Wow. But I, I think... In my mind what I really wanted was to tell people things that would make you go looking for them in whatever medium you want whether it's live performance a book a, a YouTube whatever but it's full of very opinionated things that some you know will get you just thinking but some are going to get you going this guy's a nut you know like muddy waters isn't really better than BB King or whatever but, you know, there's list of my favorite records, there's list of my favorite concerts, there's list of my favorite nightclubs, that sort of thing, so that you get a whole sense of the blues community uh, as seen through the eyes of a white guy from Toronto, Canada. You know, and the, Cana- <laughs> the Canadian content, I think, is important because it's American blues. It's, a, it's America's gift to the world. But as a Canadian, I have a, a different look on it as a guy that grew up in Mississippi or a guy that grew up in Chicago or LA or any places where the blues were big. You know, My insight is a different opinion. That's what I think makes the book worth buying because it's not going to be like some guy that went to school in you know, Tampa, Florida or something. I think I learned a little bit in writing the first book that I think writing wise the second one is better but uh, I would hope that people would read both because if, they wanna, if they're interested in me, uh, they, they go together. Two different subjects, but the same personality
0: behind them. Out of all of the research that I had done online, one thing kept popping up next to Edward Meyer's name over and over again, and that was the dress. Mr.
1: President, on this occasion of your birthday, this lovely lady is not only punctilious but punctual. Mr. President, Marilyn Monroe.
0: I know you've been asked about this a million times. Would you mind giving me the story about the Marilyn Monroe dress? Well, it's uh, it actually has two chapters in
1: the book because I first ran into Marilyn and the dress specifically in 1999, uh, an auction, Christie's auction in New York City, uh, which was the first Marilyn Monroe estate auction. It was a big deal. Uh, lots of celebrities in the house, lots of pre-advertising TV shows announcing it was gonna happen, TV shows covering it uh, live. Um, CNN was, you know, literally covered the thing live on TV. The highlight of that auction of about 500 pieces of Marilyn Monroe stuff was the birthday dress Marilyn Monroe wore to sing happy birthday to JFK in Madison Square Gardens for his birthday in 1962.
0: birthday
1: the suggested auction price uh, was probably in the name, I can't remember, but, you know, I'm going to say $100,000, which was, you know, still a lot of money, but a lot of money for a dress and more than any dress probably in 1993 had sold for. But as an auction expert of sorts, uh, hazard to use that word, but, you know, I'm supposed to be the expert. Let's put it that way. The owner owner of the company phones me on a Saturday afternoon. I'm outside at my pool, and he says, what are you doing next Saturday? And I, you know, this is a loaded question. He doesn't phone me too often, period, but never on a Saturday when I'm outside with a beer in my hand on poolside. I want you to go shopping for me in New York for Marilyn Monroe stuff, and He had interest to buy stuff for himself, not for Ripley's, but for himself. I didn't even know this auction was happening at this point, one week before. So first thing I do Monday morning is I get the catalog so I know what we're looking at. And I see that there's a few things that will be good for Ripley's and a few things that, you know, presumably are going to be good for his purposes. I meet him in New York on the, uh, I think it's a Thursday night, maybe a Friday night, I can't remember. Yeah, Friday night, I guess. Uh, And the, you know, the press sort of element to an auction was the Friday night with the high-end items, including the birthday dress. Now, I thought that he wanted the birthday dress. He thought I wanted the birthday dress for Ripley's. So there was some miscommunication. I bid $1 million for it. I was what is called the underbidder. It sold for 1.1. The very next bid, of $100,000, got the dress. At the time, I was kind of relieved because I didn't have the right to spend a million dollars. <laughs> okay, I didn't really, if I had a bought the dress, I'm not sure what would have happened but I didn't buy the dress, bought a bunch of other stuff. I spent a lot of money in total over the two days. I, I did spend almost $2 million, but so the Friday night, I, I meet him Saturday morning and he says, so did you buy the dress? I said, no, I didn't buy the dress. I didn't know you wanted the dress. And, oh, I thought you wanted the dress. And I said, no, no, no. <laughs> like, too much for Ripley's. We we haven't got the budget to buy a million-dollar dress. Oh, 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 okay. And, you know, I sensed that, you know, he really wanted the dress. But because there was a miscommunication, we didn't buy the dress for a million dollars. Flash forward 16 years, almost 17 years, 16 and a half years. The dress is now for auction again. This time it's gonna be in California in Beverly Hills, Julian's auction house. And I said to him, uh, well, I said to my boss, I said, you know, the Marilyn Monroe dress that we didn't get 16 years ago is coming for sale again. You know, I'd like to bid on it. And basically he said, no we're not going to spend a million dollars on a dress. And, you know, I knew at this point it's not, it's going to be more than a million, sure, you know, sure. the value has gone up over 16 years. So, you know, uh, but I said, you know, can I call the owner and ask him? Cause I think, you know, he really wanted it 16 years ago and he, he might be willing to put some money towards my, uh, you know, my budget so that I can afford to bid on this dress. And his response instantly was, you know, he remembered this is the dress you didn't buy 17 years ago? Yeah, Jimmy, that's, that's the dress we didn't buy 17 years ago. Well, what's it gonna go for? And I said, well, you know, my guess is probably $5 million. And, you know, it wasn't a gas, it was a silence. And then, no, we're not gonna spend $5 million. But. That time period where there was no sound led me to believe that he was still interested, and sure enough, he called me three or four times over the next couple of weeks, going, you know, what's the word on the dress? What's the word on the dress? And the expression, what's the word on the street? You know, what am I hearing? And I said, well, you know, I, I think I, I'm think I'm right, Jimmy. It's going to go around five million dollars, and you know, he he didn't say anything. He just kept asking the same question. So he he calls me at some point and says, well, let's, let's go. I want you to go to the auction. I want you to be in the room and we'll play it by ear and see what happens. As it turned out, it was a very special day in my life in both accounts. I was at a movie premiere at the New York Film Festival for a film that I was involved in with Ripley's. And it's the only time in my life that I did business in New York in the morning and did business in L.A. the same day in the evening. So I flew across the country. I landed. And uh, the first thing I did was I phoned him and said, I'm on my way to the auction house. And he says, OK, well, you can spend two million. And I hung up the phone and said, well, you know, we're not even going to be in the race at two million. You know, it isn't going to happen. And then I got to the auction house and I'm sitting in the the relatively middle of the area. Uh, I used to like to sit very specific where I like to be in the auction house and not down front like the show offs do. I get a call from the the president of Ripley's and he says, well, I just talked to the owner and uh, he, he wants you to call him so i call him on the phone and he says i want to stay on the phone with you and we're going to bid on this dress and now making history selling one of the most significant dresses in the world this dress is a piece of history and you can own it tonight the dress started at a million who'll get five million dollars I've got two million to start. It hits two million within a couple seconds. Two million, it's now going up by $500,000. So it goes from two to two and a half. And I says, Jimmy, it's now over our two million. Next bid's two and a half. I got him on the phone on one ear and listening to what's going on in the other. And he says bid. So I bid at two and a half. And it was mine for what seemed like an eternity. The auctioneer is begging someone else to go to the three million mark. Would anybody get three million? We have two million. And I'm sitting there sweating going, oh, my God, come on, come on, come on. Get it over with. It's mine at two and a half million. And, you know, at the very last second, you get a three million dollar bid. 3 million. I got 3 million. 4 million dollars. 4 million dollars. We have 3 million bid. 4 million dollars. And so I Jimmy, it's not ours at 3 million. And to my surprise, he says bid. And so I bid. We have 3 million bid. Any other bids at 4 million. 4 million dollars we have bid. Fair warning, last call. Ladies and gentlemen, this dress just sold for 4.81 million, the buyer's premium. Rip, please, believe it or not. It's mine, I get it. And the place is like chaos. I've got paparazzi every inch of me. Uh room is erupting in applause. I had a woman out to be the president of the Marilyn Monroe Society, give me a big hug and crying on my shoulder, and I'm going, who are you, lady? And so I was a pretty big celebrity for at least an hour. My my posse of my assistant and my wife and I went out and had a big fancy dinner at midnight and to celebrate. And after like three hours of doing interviews, went to bed and my phone rang at like five AM and it was England. And so the news had already hit Europe. And so I was on the phone until like three in the afternoon that day. So like literally about 10 hours. of nothing but talking about what happened last night. We ended up having roughly a billion media hits worldwide. Never in the history of Ripley's did we have that kind of attention. It brought the company to a whole different level of acknowledgement of, you know, limelight. So, I get a call from Jimmy and he says, so you bought the dress last night. Yeah, Jimmy. And, uh, you know, he clearly had already heard, he'd seen it on the news by that time, whatever, but they all quoted 4.8 and he thought it was four. He, you know, he'd been on the phone when I bought it, but he didn't add the tax. So he's reading in the paper, it was 4.8, and oh my god, how did we get 4.8? I agreed to four, you know, like how much profit is Edward making, (laughs) you know, and so it became a bit of a joke, and then we debuted the dress in Toronto. Uh, We had a very big gala affair, tuxedos and the whole bit, and we We spent almost $100,000 on a display case for the thing. Okay, had to get all special humidity control, light control, unbreakable glass, security. Uh, You know, it became a huge, huge deal. We ended up building a special crate to travel with it on private jet. We wouldn't put it on a commercial airline. And we did a uh, four or five city tour of it to different Ripley uh, places as well Jimmy took it to his hometown in Saskatchewan, a town of about 300 people, were the first people that got to see it. It was a pretty amazing story. People driving hours and hours to see it because nothing like this had ever happened in the middle of Saskatchewan. So I did two or three uh, openings with it, uh, you know, San Francisco and Dallas and here in Orlando, and you know, did a little dog and pony show. And as I said, started the story. We bought a bunch of stuff in 1999. From 1999 to 2016 i had been buying Marilyn fairly often anytime I saw something. So we were able to create a whole traveling exhibit of Marilyn Monroe artifacts with the dresses as the big wow factor. So the most expensive thing I ever bought in my 40-year career, uh, the most publicized thing, uh the most joked about thing you know everybody asked me you know uh, do i look good in it does it fit me well <laughs> you know, that sort of thing um and you know understandably marilyn monroe in my mind is one of the absolute icons of the 20th century i don't think her uh, popularity will ever wane i, I put her at Elvis, and sinatra and maybe michael jackson you know as as the gods of publicity that any time you got something that connects with Marilyn Monroe, you're going to have some success. And in this case, connected with John F. Kennedy, one of the most popular presidents of all time, uh, and the whole mystique of Marilyn's death shortly after, whether she had a romance with Kennedy, all of that, the dress is a no-brainer in my mind, even at $4.8 million. It'll take a long time to get that money back, but uh, (laughs) they will. It it will not go down in value, let's put it that way.
0: (laughs) So you found and collected lint statues, toothpick buildings, giant sculptures made of jade blues memorabilia all this stuff from all over the world what are you still searching for what would you say is the holy grail Hmm. well i don't know if
1: there is such a thing um that term holy grail gets used a lot and i used it personally quite a lot it goes with it goes with uh you know what is popular at the time You know, the Holy Grail in 1993, when we're talking about dinosaurs, would have been a T-Rex. You know, can I find a T-Rex skeleton? Well, no. (laughs) Later in my life, I did, but not in 1993. But, you know, I guess uh, it depends on the the time and place. Um, Sort of answering your question, but sort of avoiding it. The one thing I never bought is called a Moki Mokai, a tattooed human head from New Zealand Maori tribe, right? At some point it became illegal. So that's why I never bought one, but you know, it's something I was always wanting to buy. And certainly when I got to New Zealand, it was the highlight of my trip to go see a museum in New Zealand that had like 50 of them. I have, I have the, the Ripley longtime wax figure artist made me one. So I have a fake one in my house. Uh, which is one of my absolute treasures. I, I adore the thing, but, you know, it's a reminder that there was ethics involved, that some things are off limits, no matter how cool they are. You know, there's no point buying this if you're gonna get uh, protesters at your front door, or, you know, whatever. So that, that, that is one of those holy grail things that is out there. They, I had two offered to me, but, you know, we made conscious decision, no, this is not something you wanna do.
0: That, that's that's incredible. Edward, thank you so much for talking to me.
1: You're supposed to say that's unbelievable, but since I don't work <laughs> I'm for you oh,
0: anymore, no.
1: <laughs> I, I don't have to say that. That's Incredible was our competition back in the early 80s, you know?
0: Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> If you're interested in learning more about edward in his past with ripley's believe it or not or his history with the blues you can check out both of his books available on amazon i will have links to purchase them in the show notes that means nothing to me this is a podcast hosted by me Trey taylor audio editing is done on audacity suite 2.3.0 and we're recorded on a yeti blackout omnidirectional mic all of our music credits for this episode can be found in the show notes wherever it is you are listening to this. Special thanks to Edward Meyer and everyone who I have incessantly texted about being on my show and know you're sick of it, but I'm not going to stop. Another reminder, I mentioned it in the previous episode, but our Patreon is up and running, so if you want to support the show, even with a dollar a month, you can head over there and do just that. There's a couple cool awards I came up with, like a live show or getting your name in the credits. Uh, so read through each one and see if there's something in it that applies to you. Uh, we're still working on the formatting, length, and overall vibe of the show. So if you have any questions, comments, or you want to let me know what you thought, please shoot me a message at contact at thatmeansnothing.com, or we can be found on all social media at thatmeans0, the number zero. Thanks for listening.